Hello and welcome to another edition of the PJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Olive Gail Grant and I'm joined today by Natalie Shoham, who is an NAHR clinical fellow at UCL, and Alexandra Pittman, who is an associate professor of psychiatry at UCL and also an editorial board member of PJ Psych. Natalie and Alexandra both peer review for PJ Psych journals, and we're here today to discuss their paper published in PJ Psych Advances. Open versus blind peer review is anonymity better than transparency. And this is a timely publication because at the moment, BJ Psych is piloting its new reviewer program in which relatively inexperienced reviewers are paired with senior reviewers uh, who can mentor them throughout the peer review process, which is discussed in more detail in this paper. Natalie and Alexandra, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So we're here today to discuss your new article in BJ Psych Advances, which is called Open versus Blind Peer Review, Is Anonymity Better Than Transparency? So uh, Natalie, perhaps you'd give us a brief summary of what this article is about. So we wrote this article because although peer review is widely accepted as a sort of quality check in academia and a very important part of the publishing process, um, we don't think there's very much guidance available as to different types of peer review, what form it should take. And we wanted to um, provide a summary for authors, readers and reviewers in the field of psychiatry as to what different types are out there. Um, so we're mostly giving an overview of single blind peer review, double blind peer review and open peer review, although we mentioned a few other types as, as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I guess the type of peer review that most people uh, think of when they think of uh, peer review is single blind. Uh, so just talk us through the concept there, which I think people will be aware of. So in single blind peer review, the identity of the authors is on the paper for the reviewers when they receive the manuscript. So they know whose work they're reviewing and where they are based in terms of institution. But the reviewer's identity is not revealed to the authors. So they are able to do their review with anonymity, essentially. Hmm. And so I, I guess the main advantage is that no one knows uh, who's done the review. So if you say something mean, you don't fear reprisals. Uh, is, is that it? Um, that could be said to be the main advantage, although hopefully it's not encouraging people to say something mean. And it's just meaning that they can um, give honest criticism without fear of reprisal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so something I, I wanted to pick up on is uh, in the paper, we, you talk about the, the disadvantages of open peer review. Um, one of which, of course, is that you can see uh, the, the authors, so you know who the authors are, you know what their institution is, you know, uh, you know, the brief Google search, you can probably find out quite a lot about them. Um, is, is that a disadvantage? I mean, Alexandra, maybe you, what, what do you think about that as a, uh, as a disadvantage? In my mind, that's almost an advantage that you know uh, who's written the paper and what their background is and what their likely uh, slant on it is. Well, there is a concern that if you are a particularly junior reviewer and you're confronted by a paper in which there are some quite stellar academics who've, who've been involved in the team who submitted the paper, that you might be somewhat dazzled by the individuals involved and perhaps not as willing to look for um, methodological problems because you assume that they know what they're doing. Now, a strong thrust of our article was to encourage more junior researchers to get involved in the process of peer review by demystifying it and helping them think about the relative merits of different approaches were they to be approached by journals do um, peer review. And so 
By identifying the potential for prestige bias, we're really encouraging peer reviewers to feel bold in pointing out methodological problems and also challenging any assumptions they might have that highly experienced researchers might indeed make um, methodological errors and you know that they might not need any um, edits made to their papers. Hmm. Yes, I see that point of view. Um, so there are alternatives to uh, to single blind peer review. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, you do list some journals that use uh, these alternative methods, but I think most journals are using single blind peer review. Um, so the first option is double blind, which, uh, as the name suggests, is just that uh, you know the uh, authors can't see the reviewers and the reviewers can't see the authors. Is that right? And if so, what's the advantage of that? Um, so, uh, yeah, as you um, correctly said, Oliver, so in um, double-blind peer review, the reviewers wouldn't know whose work they are reviewing. Um, and I think the main advantage of that is that if it's successful in that the reviewers can't then guess whose work they're reviewing, um, it should really remove the possibility for prestige bias. And they should be judging, you know, a junior or early career researcher's work in, in a, the same way that they would um, a more experienced reviewer. Um, and they should still be giving the same sort of um, rigor to their review, even if the person, you know, is, is very well reputed. And I think the other hopefully positive effect of that is that other types of bias, so possibly based on gender or ethnic minority status, or perhaps coming from a low and middle income country and not having the prestige of a very well-known Western institution, um, hopefully those types of bias would be reduced by not knowing who the author is as well. Hmm. I, I see that point. I suppose um, on, on a very simplistic level, you can kind of tell uh, anyway, right, what sort of institution a paper comes from by reading it. Uh, I mean, depending on what your specific field is and the realities of what fields you're peer reviewing in, you know, if you see a, uh, a clinical study, uh, you can tell usually which country it's carried out in. If the end number is in hundreds or thousands, you know, it's almost by definition uh, prestigious uh, events to carry that out. You know, the, the funding requirements, et cetera, are high. Um, so does it, I mean, I, I see that it would do away with that for some things, but it probably wouldn't completely eliminate that. What's, what's your thoughts, Alexandra? Well, you're right that there is this imbalance in double-blind peer review and that the blinding isn't equal. So it's much easier for the reviewers to guess who the authors are than the authors are able to guess who the reviewers are. And I think that it's possible for remnants of prestige bias to operate there if you identify particularly senior authors who dominate a field who are self-citing either because they, they do dominate the field or because they are favouring their own publications. But you, you might feel overwhelmed by somebody's seniority in the same way as we've described for single-blind peer review. But another key thrust of our article was to invite reviewers to challenge their own preconceptions and think about the extent to which unconscious bias operates in the way they judge submissions to journals. And so whether you are practicing single blind, double blind peer review or engaging in the process of open peer review, which we'll come to in a minute, it's important that reviewers really think about this when they're commenting on colleagues' work and try and be as constructive as, as possible and think about the extent to which what they might see or guess about the author's gender, 
or ethnicity or the setting they're working in, the extent to which that might influence their judgments on methodological quality. Hmm. And, and yes, I see that argument definitely. So that, I suppose, brings us on to the third possibility, which is discussed in your uh, paper, which I think very few uh, journals do, right, which is to have a completely open peer review. Uh, so everyone can see who everyone is. Um, what, 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 do you support that? Do you think that's a good idea or something journals should strive for? Maybe Natalie first. Well, so the advantage of doing open peer review um, you know, could be several fold. So whilst it can be an advantage for reviewers to have on an anonymity, sorry, um, so that they feel they can sort of be honest, even if the person they're um, critiquing for is more senior to them, um, it might also mean that they're less accountable for their reviews. So there's maybe less disincentive to provide an overly harsh criticism or to, you know, not spend as much time being very thorough in your review. And when the identity of the reviewers is known to the authors, not only does it put them on an equal footing, but it might actually encourage more diligent, perhaps even slightly kinder reviews. So in many ways, I think that is something that we should be a bit more open to um, in the research community. But obviously, there are situations where open view in itself can create problems. Um, and we've already talked about perhaps more junior reviewers feeling a little bit worried about publishing their review, for example. There's something very interesting in your paper that I, I think is interesting anyway, which is that this statistically quote saying that if you do a survey of reviewers and you say, what do you think about open peer review? Most people think positively about it. But if you then say, well, what if we published your name, just your name, I think, not even your review comments, but just your name alongside the finished journal article, then people don't want it anymore. They say it's a bad idea now. Um, that seems odd to me. I can't quite sort of understand the psychology of that or what the fear is. What maybe, Alexandra, you can shed some light on, on how you interpret that uh, uh, stat. Well, in, in discussing these issues in preparing this article, Natty and I both identified with this that in some way we, we see this utopia in which all peer review is conducted completely openly. You, you know, relatively novice reviewers feel very well supported by senior colleagues to be very constructive in their criticism and very thorough in the reviews they prepare so that they don't feel put off by the fact that the authors that they're reviewing are more experienced than them and that everybody is happy to both put their names to reviews and also to take constructive criticism from reviewers regardless of their years of experience or their seniority. But of course, when we're actually asked to review a paper and we look at the authors and we think, hmm, do I really want to review this paper? Do I feel a bit uncertain about, given that those authors might be people that I might wish to collaborate with one day, I'm probably going to meet at a conference. In reality, you can sometimes feel that it's not such a good idea after all. So while on the one hand, we are pointing out how different models of peer review can address biases that we observe, in the academic literature. At the same time, we are acknowledging the practical issues that reviewers and authors have to confront when they're going about peer review. And the other population we need to think about are handling editors, because it's really important that when they select reviewers and they re read those reviews, they think very carefully about whether there are any biases such as the ones we've described operating here, and whether they need to take this into account when they're weighing up the different reviews in making a decision on that paper. Mm -hmm. 
I, I, I mean, I can certainly see that. And that sort of, um, I suppose there's a bit of a, not really an elephant in the room, but there's something that's always interesting to think about uh, in terms of peer review is that obviously uh, peer review is a necessary part of the entire medical publishing ecosystem as we currently have it. So if you are going to have a journal, you need uh, reviewers, and the more papers you're going to publish, the more reviewers you need. Uh, so I suppose if I changed my hat and imagined that I was working at a journal publishing house, the only type of peer review I'd ever be willing to proceed with was whatever was easiest for the reviewers. Uh, so actually, if you could if you could persuade me that actually maybe just a five point tick box was uh, uh, acceptable, and I could just say how much I liked it on a scale of one to five, I'd probably go for that. Uh, if I was a, a journal publisher, I could see I could see some shaking heads uh, uh, between you, Natalie. Do you want to have the first head shake at that as an idea? Well, I think as well as being a um, you know almost a gatekeeping role, um, acting as a reviewer, I also think a really important job as a reviewer is to help the article to be published, ideally, but help it to be published in the best form it can be published in. So peer review as a process is not just about saying this is a good article, this is a bad article. It really is about being a fresh pair of eyes and hopefully bring a new perspective so that you might notice errors that can easily be ironed out before publication or just something that could be improved. Um, so you are actually really helping to shape and develop the paper as well as just say yes or no to its publication. And I think that's possibly the most important part of the process that would be lost with a tick box. Mm. Uh, but what about, uh, so maybe the other half of my question to Alexandra, so, you know, it is unquestionably easier for peer reviewers or more popular peer reviewers to have an anonymous review as things currently stand uh, than an open peer review that, you know, would improve transparency. And if the goal of science is transparency, then that clearly is uh, a nice thing to have. Um, do you think, though, that that uh, need for transparency is uh, ever going to move past the need for from, from the journal or from the uh, uh, publishing group? To have these reviews done in a, a speedy and, and uh, reasonable way, as in you would never want to do anything that reduces the willingness of someone to peer review your paper. Uh, do you see the sort of uh, argument I'm getting at? Yes, and, and you're describing a distinction between a relatively quick tick box approach, which runs the risk of being quite unthinking and also lacking the extraordinary intellectual capital that is crafted when somebody prepares a proper free text peer review. But of course, balancing that against the time taken to really read that paper properly and attend to the syntax of what you write so that it is constructive and it is kind, but it also calls out all the issues that need to be addressed. And I suppose because of that intellectual capital that is provided by reviewers, which ultimately is very restricted just to authors and the other reviewers when we're thinking about systems of single and double blind peer review. The major advantage of open peer review is the richness of that intellectual material is made available to a much wider audience. And that also has a bearing on improving the process of peer review because it's a fantastic training resource. So if you are a fledgling peer reviewer, you can read um, journal articles in open peer review publications, and you can see the whole process unfolding in front of you. And you get some really useful advice there on how to set about writing a paper and also how to peer review it. So I think that that is um, an under-acknowledged advantage of open peer review. Yes, uh, I can certainly see that. Um, so something I wanted to ask you both is that uh, in the last 10 years, maybe, on, on the subject of openness and, and you know transparency and discussions happening in public, um, there's been a rise in uh, preprint servers. So 
Uh, I assume most people listening will know what a preprint server is, but ju just in case you uh, have these depositories, the most uh, widely used is, is called BioArchive uh, or MedArchive, uh, in which one can upload their paper in the finished formats that you'd have it in to submit it to the journal. So you've finished it, you're ready for it to leave your lab, uh, but it's not peer reviewed. You upload it in public, and uh, what usually happens is that it just sits there as a PDF. But if it is particularly interesting or controversial or in a particularly busy field, what may happen is that people will offer feedback on it, which will uh, typically appear either on Twitter or as a little feed below the paper, uh, which comes usually from Twitter. Um, do you like that? Do you think that do you, do you like the concept of preprint server? Um, maybe Natalie first views on preprint servers uh, from the perspective of a peer reviewer. Well, um, I don't have anything against preprint servers, and I think that there are situations where there might be very good um, reason to share research findings rapidly, um, particularly over the past year, for example. And I think they probably have a very important role in that. If I'm being honest, I haven't personally used one. I think because, um, well, you said from the point of view of a reviewer, but actually more from the point of view of an author, I really do quite value a couple of trusted reviewers sort of checking my work before it goes out publicly. Um, but as I say, if there was a, you know, another field perhaps I was in where the findings were going to make a difference to clinical practice straight away, it might be worthwhile, a worthwhile thing to do. Uh, and, and what about it from the angle of uh, this is a sort of light version of an open peer review? So, uh, you know, you're not nominating one expert to give it a good amount of time and to give their feedback. But basically saying that anyone that wants to say something about this paper can. Uh, and, you know, it's not in its final published version. And if you say something insightful, we might change the paper. Um, do you think do you think that's good, Alexandra? Do you, do you like that aspect of it? Uh, would you would you uh, like to see that system sort of become more uh, mainstream or, or more universal in publishing? In theory, I think it's a good idea, but I I imagine it hasn't yet gathered sufficient momentum. And I've got very limited experience with preprints, but from that experience, can say that where I have archived a paper or been involved in a paper that was archived, we didn't get any comments on that page because there's a facility on that page for people to comment. It in that setting but we did get a lot of um, tweeting of that link without necessarily any critical discussions so as it as it stood that paper didn't change substantially from the version posted on the preprint server and that published but there is a tendency for people to tweet those links assuming that this is the final version and that could be problematic if there is a substantial change so as, as Natalie points out, I would be worried about it being out in the public domain before any serious methodological flaws had been addressed. But similarly, as a peer reviewer, if I did spot major problems, it would be concerning that that content was already out there and was being read with the assumption that this was the final version. So I think we just need to be very clear, perhaps in the way links are presented when they're tweeted to add some banner to be clear that this has not yet been peer reviewed so that people can read those preprints in the context of the stage they have reached in the peer review process and a reminder of how important that peer review process is. Mm -hmm. uh, so to finish, uh, we've discussed all these different sort of styles of peer review that you could go with some of the limits uh, and positives of peer review. Um, let's say hypothetically you became the uh, dictator-in-chief of BJ Psych Journals for, uh, you know, the next uh, year or, or, or forever. 
Uh, would you change the peer review style? Uh, and if so, what to? Uh, Natalie first, maybe. Um, it is a still a very difficult question, even after thinking about all of the advantages and disadvantages of each. Um, I think when Alexandra and I talked about this, we felt that maybe there is a theoretical utopia, like Alexandra picked up on, where everything is open to the extent that reviews are published alongside the final article, if you care to look for them. Um, but we also think we need to retain an option for, um, or I at least think we also need to retain an option for a level of blinding in review, partly because there might be times as a very new author when you just appreciate the chance to have feedback on your article and possibly correct any errors before you know that's made public. And also, um, as a reviewer, there might be situations where it is much easier for you to write an honest review if your identity is concealed. So although we do think that open peer review probably encourages better reviews overall, um, we I, I don't think we should be getting rid of the old system completely either. Alexandra, are you, are you in agreement? Well, I'm sure that most editorial boards are driven by pragmatics. And if there are certain models of peer review that have a better hit rate in terms of reviewers agreeing to review those papers and the paper being processed in a tight way, then I think ultimately one would go with that model of peer review, regardless of the relative other disadvantages and advantages, advantages with respect to bias. I think we probably need to put peer reviewers more at the centre of this process and think about how we reward them, because this is fundamentally a largely unpaid activity that people tend to cram into corners of their day and can be significant additional pressure on people who are already very, very busy. And until we can think about appropriate reward and incentive systems, then I think we are going to really struggle to encourage sufficient numbers of peer reviewers to address the rise in the number of submissions that you refer to. So I do think editorial boards need to think very carefully about why people can sometimes be reluctant to peer review and think about how they can make the additional pressure of peer review worthwhile. Thank you very much. Uh, that's the end of our podcast. So that was Natalie Shoham, who's an NIHR clinical fellow at UCL, and Alexandra Pittman, associate professor at UCL. Uh, we've been discussing their article, Open versus Blind Peer Review, Is Anonymity Better Than Transparency? published in BJ Psychofances. Thank you very, very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.